0: You are listening to Gay SA Radio, where you are family. My name is Tom Budge, and this is Soul Searching, our weekly program where you and I take a look at all the spiritual matters that matter. Today we take a look at the bigotry that we find, particularly in religious circles, and how that impacts on who we are and makes it difficult for us to express ourselves in the manner that we ought to. There's been a great kerfuffle around Pastor Steve Anderson's proposed visit to South Africa. He is the pastor of the Faithful World Baptist Church who has made headlines after he posted a video commenting on the Orlando shootings in Florida in the United States saying that the upside of those shootings in a gay bar meant that there were 50 less perverted homosexuals on earth. He is vociferously anti-gay. Here is Steve Anderson's suggested cure for AIDS. Because if you executed the
1: homos like God recommends, you wouldn't have all this AIDS.
0: Anderson plans to hold a soul-winning marathon in Johannesburg sometime around about September the 18th or 19th this year. And he has met with a strong contingent of gay lobbyists who rightfully believe that he may not come to South Africa to disseminate hate speech. While there appears to be nothing that the government can do to prohibit his entry, it seems likely that he will be expelled if he finds himself in breach of the country's constitution. As much as the hairs on the back of one's neck bristle at the thought of such narrow-mindedness, one is nonetheless left quite speechless at his zealous adherence to what he believes to be true. He is not afraid to stick his neck out and make enemies because he is convinced that he has God's blessing and support. Pastor Steve Anderson is on the extremist fringe of Christian belief around gay issues, but he does not stand alone. Many before him have taken an anti-homosexual stance and in the future many will continue to do so. Whilst there is a lot of eyes on Pastor Steve Anderson, very few know about a public talk given by Anthony Morris Third. He is one of the seven men that lead Jehovah's Witnesses. He travels all over the world preaching to Jehovah's Witnesses across the globe. He started one of his particular talks by speaking to Jehovah's Witness women about their clothing. He was particularly concerned about the use of spanks in public places. Here in South Africa, we would probably call these leggings, the type of garment that women use at gym or for yoga. He said that the skin-tight stuff they wear, is it's not modest, and it's certainly not sound of mind. It is really not appropriate. There's nothing else to say about it. Don't go out in public like that and say you worship the true God. He believes that it's one thing to wear those kind of clothes at home, But even if one was out jogging, it would be an inappropriate thing for a Jehovah's Witness woman to be seen in public with skin-tight pants. Having taken a swipe at women wearing exercise pants in public, he then turned his attention to men's fashion, namely this, what he calls, skinny-fit style that has been so popular for a while. Morris calls it the metrosexual look. Listen to the way he describes this in the same talk of his.
1: And the other one that uh, needs addressing is for these young fellas, because the older ones aren't doing much of it, thankfully. Uh, It's the metrosexual look. We've addressed that in the past. We've said things about it. But what's happened now, it's really caught on more. Now, the metrosexual, that's the, the tight suit jacket and the tight pants. Uh, better known as tight dance, and uh, they are tight. I mean tight all the way down to the ankles, and that is not modest, brothers. No, it's not appropriate. It's not sound of mind.
0: Circuit overseers are appointed church elders. Who have oversight of a, of several congregations in a particular area, and Morris said that he was proud of one circuit overseer who refused to go from door to door with a young congregant wearing tight pants. Listen to Anthony Morris telling this story,
1: and I was proud of one circuit overseer who told me this past summer at one of the international conventions because he brought it up. one of these fellows shows up for his circuit overseer visit. And he wants to go out to the ministry, work with him, door-to-door, and he's wearing tight pants. And the circuit overseer was man enough, spiritual man enough, to say, no, I'm not going door-to-door with you. Mm-mm. Not with that dress on. Inappropriate.
0: Morris went on to say that he conducted a poll amongst the women of the congregation to ask if they found men in skinny-fitting clothing attractive.
1: Do you find that appealing, attractive? You know, I'm just curious, because I'm not a woman. Uh, And you know what? I've not met one yet that thought they looked good.
0: I'm not surprised that Anthony Morris couldn't find a single woman in any other congregation he spoke to who would dare admit that she found a young man in tight pants attractive. Had she done so, that would have been the end of her. As if that wasn't enough, Anthony Morris then took a punch at gay men. Listen very carefully to what he says next.
1: But like I've been telling uh, others, and and this is a fact, the homosexuals that are designing these clothes, they like you in tight pants. That's who likes it. Not spiritual people.
0: (laughs) No, Mr. Morris. No. Yep. You heard it right. According to Anthony Morris, one of the most senior people in the Jehovah's Witness organization, the homosexuals that are designing skinny fit clothes are the only ones who like it. The implication is that gay fashion designers deliberately create garments of this kind in order to perv over the straight men dressed in them by saying that spiritual people would not do this unveils his bigoted view that homosexuals cannot be spiritual. When this kind of claptrap is preached from the pulpit by men in authority, there is little wonder why the ordinary congregant feels righteously justified in taking a homophobic stance against gay people. Here's another example of sexual bigotry. In July 2016, the website ChristianMingle.com published a YouTube video saying that it had been the victim of a lawsuit by two gay men who wanted options for homosexual couples on its website. ChristianMingle.com is the, as it puts it, the largest and fastest growing online community for single Christians and is the premier destination for anyone looking to date and marry within the Christian faith. Initially launched in 2001, the site now has more than 15 million registered members and apparently two gay Christian men thought that it was appropriate to approach the courts to have Christian Mingle include an option for homosexual Christians to find partners on the website. Christian Mingle made this statement. Unfortunately, a decision was granted in their favour, and now Christian Mingle has to make accommodations for the LGBTI community. This will inevitably decrease the quality of Christian Mingle, since it has a place where Christians go to find partners with Christian values. And the Bible condemns homosexuality, calling it perverted and shameful. This is also a sign of the end of the time, it continues to say. Jesus compared the days prior to his return to the days of Lot, who lived in Sodom. In Genesis 19, homosexuals attacked Lot and his house. In other words, homosexuals attacked followers of God. Today, homosexuals are attacking Christians by using the court system. They pull the discrimination card to force Christians to accommodate them. This is satanic says the Christian Mingle. I'm left wondering who really is pulling the discrimination card. Is it the two gay men? Or is it Christian Mingle who hides behind the story of Lot and other Bible texts to condemn homosexual people? Let's return to the Jehovah's Witnesses for a minute. Earlier this year, the Jehovah's Witnesses published a cartoon aimed at teaching their children. It begins with a scene of a little girl pasting a drawing she had made on the school blackboard. It is a drawing of her and her brother holding hands with their parents. The scene then moves to home, where this little girl is talking to her mum about the pictures the children had made and pasted on the board. Amongst them was a picture drawn by a friend Carrie, who had drawn her holding onto the hands of her two mummies, The little girl said that the teacher had told the class that it was okay for the little girl to have two mummies.
2: Look, Mom! I drew our family in school today. Oh, wow! I didn't have time to finish Caleb's face. <laughs> Carrie drew two mommies. She told me they're married to each other. My teacher says that all that matters is that people love each other and that they're happy. Hmm. Well, people have their own ideas about what is right and wrong. But what matters is how Jehovah feels. He wants us to be happy, and he knows how we can be happiest. That's why he invented marriage the way he did. You mean one man and one woman? Exactly. Look at Genesis 127. Jehovah created Adam and Eve, male and female. Then in Genesis 2.24, he said that a man will stick to his wife. Later, Jesus said the same thing. Jehovah's standards haven't changed. It's kind of like going on an airplane. What would happen if someone wanted to bring something on the plane that wasn't allowed? They couldn't go on the trip. Right, it's the same with Jehovah. He wants us to be his friend and live in paradise forever. But we have to follow his standards to get there. At Matthew seven thirteen and 14, it talks about the road leading to paradise. To get there, Jehovah says we have to leave some things behind. That means anything Jehovah doesn't approve of. But I want everyone to get to paradise. So does Jehovah. And you know what? People can change. That's why we share his message. So, what can you say to Carrie? Well... I could tell her about the paradise, I could tell her about the animals, and the resurrection. That's awesome! Let's practice!
0: The examples I've shown you of Christian Mingle and the Jehovah's Witnesses are so full of judgment. As much judgment as those of the statements of Pastor Steve Anderson, they differ only in the energy of their delivery but it would be deeply unfair to say that all Christianity takes an anti-gay position. An article printed in the Huffington Post in February this year says that All Saints Anglican Church in Australia has a powerful message for anti-gay Christians who believe that lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender identifying individuals don't have a place in their church. In fact, their pavement billboard reads, Dear Christians... Some people are gay. Get over it. Love God. The sign echoes a similar sentiment in a hilarious proclamation by St. John's Anglican Church that said, Jesus had two dads and it turned out just fine. So there is a complete spread of sentiment from welcome acceptance on the one hand to outright condemnation and hatred on the other. So how do members of the LGBTI Christian community reconcile this? Let's just accept for a moment that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. Then it would be reasonable to assume that its author had only one interpretation in mind. There can be only one version of the truth. The mere fact that there are diverse opinions amongst the clergy, ranging from acceptance to hatred of gay people, means that these holy texts are indeed open to interpretation. Steve Anderson and the Jehovah's Witnesses both say that their interpretation of the Bible is the only one that accurately charts what God had originally intended. All other interpretations are the conniving workings of the devil. Let's take a look at things more objectively and dispassionately then. Biblical debate happens at many levels. Take evolution for an example. The Bible clearly says that God created the entire universe in six days. Yet all our scientific evidence points to a slow unfolding of the universe ever since the Big Bang and evolutionary development of life on earth as each species adapts to take advantage of its environment to secure its own survival. One finds on the internet raging debates both for and against creation. There are many schools of Christian thought that completely debunk Darwinian evolution, taking quite literally what the Bible says. Yet other biblical scholars view the account of creation in a more symbolic way which is right, which is wrong. That's the conundrum with holy texts. They are prone to different interpretation. Presupposing, as we've said before, that the Bible is indeed the Word of God and that it only has one universal truth, one would have to expect that the truth will always be in harmony with science and our understanding of the universe. As our understanding unfolds, it ought to be corroborated by scriptural texts, either literally or symbolically. It would be inconceivable to have the Bible say one thing and for science to have a conflicting set of operating principles. Thus, in the case of creation versus evolution, there can only be one truth that fully supports both views. If this makes sense when talking about the instantiation of the universe... It must also make sense when we talk about other things, like sex. The scientific biological definition of reproduction is that it is an inbuilt drive to mix genetic traits to enhance an organism's specialization so that it can adapt more readily to its environment. But sex is much, much more than just an animalistic urge. It has an emotional component too, A psychological definition is that there are three stages to human sex. Firstly, desire and interest. Then, excitement and arousal. And finally, orgasm. Psychopathology and sexual disorder occur when there is a failure during any one of these stages. Sexual orientation is not a disorder. The American Psychological Association speaking of lesbian, gay, and bisexual expression, says research has found no inherent association between any of these sexual orientations and psychopathology. Both heterosexual behavior and homosexual behavior are normal aspects of human sexuality. Again, science and scripture cannot be in conflict if there is only one universal truth, Even across multiple religions, sex is seen differently. Where Christianity often attributes sex as having been the original sin, ancient tantric texts suggest that sex has three purposes, procreation, pleasure and liberation. The idea of sex as procreation and pleasure is easy to grasp, but as a vehicle to spiritual liberation is far more complex. It comes to sexual participants in the climax of their act in an ecstatic experience of infinite awareness when all opposites collapse into the oneness. Essentially, these practices awaken kundalini energy which rises upwards, culminating in samadhi or the integration with all else. Sex in this context is a whole-body prayer to the Divine and is very different from its sinfully perceived Christian counterpart. Trapped therefore in detail and in literal interpretation of Scripture, preachers like Steve Anderson and members of the Jehovah's Witness governing body seem no longer to be able to see the wood for the trees. Biblical law does change. In the Old Testament, the Bible accepted many sexual practices that we wouldn't tolerate in modern society, and it condemns many that we choose to ignore because they seem barbaric, old-fashioned, outmoded, and beyond the law today. He has a list of some of them. When a couple are married and he discovers that she is not a virgin, the bride is stoned to death. Ouch, imagine the human rights outcry if uh, people practice this today. Also stoned to death would be anyone having sex with someone else's husband or wife. The Bible forbids divorce and divorcees from remarrying, but many of my friends are in this category. Catching and executing both man and woman when they have had sex during her menstruation would require a special branch of law enforcement to carry out inspections and I'd be loath to give this responsibility to some of our police force. Then there is a law demanding that if a man dies childless, his widow is to have sex with all his brothers until a male heir is born. Hm, there could be a rush to legislate this one. One more bizarre decree. If two men get into a brawl and the wife of one of them intercedes and grabs the other's genitals, they would have to cut off her hand. So it would be interesting to ask Steve Anderson and Anthony Morris why the church does not enforce these Old Testament laws in modern times. I have a feeling that they would argue that the Old Testament laws were enforced up until Jesus' appearance on earth. I somehow think that Jesus' teachings overrule older biblical law. If that is true, one would have to set aside the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in its entirety, along with all the other texts and debated practices, and adopt the new set of teachings instituted by Jesus. There has to be a principle behind this kind of choice. One can't simply cherry-pick some laws while omitting others. But the Christian church has been shaped and pruned before. A mere 380 years after Jesus uh, was born, there was the Council of Constantinople, which was made up of a whole group of Christian bishops in an effort to, to attain consensus in the church through an assembly that represented everyone. This campaign was to provide a doctrinal statement of correct belief which tried to unite the creeds of Christianity, which were at times in conflict with one another, and they tried to bring about a new universal set of beliefs. Not only were biblical teachings tampered with along the way, but there is also the matter of the Apocrypha. These are a collection of ancient books found in some editions of the Bible. They form a separate section somewhere between the Old and New Testaments, Over many centuries, these books were slowly pruned from the Bible until we are left with the modern Bible, made up of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Some scholars believe that even reincarnation, the soul taking on repeated embodiments, was also slowly pruned from the Christian teachings as doctrine was refined through interpretation. So I want us to but wonder what Jesus' attitude would have been had he walked on earth today. The general tone of his ministry was one of tolerance, humility and love. If we are to ignore Old Testament law in favor of Jesus' more modern teachings, then we ought to find out what he had to say about homosexuality. Setting aside Old Testament scriptures for a moment, we are left with a handful of New Testament verses that might allude to same-sex practices. But each of these scriptures refers to situations that would be commonly abhorrent today, like the condemnation of male rape in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or sex that invalidates one's sexual orientation, or pedophilia lascivious and licentious behavior, ritual orgies, and bestiality. These scriptures warn of losing one's spirituality and one's connection to God, not through one's sexual orientation, but most likely through one's lust for power, need for control, and uncapped sexual consumption. Perhaps you've seen Tinto Brass's very controversial 1979 film Caligula featuring Malcolm McDowell, Peter O'Toole, Helen Mirren, and Sir John Gielgud. In advertising the movie, they posed the question, what would you have done if you'd have been given absolute power of life and death over everybody else in the world? Born on the 31st of August, 12 AD, Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, known as Caligula, became at 24, The most powerful man in the world, the third emperor of Rome. The historian Lord Acton postulated that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely and this was certainly true of Caligula. Raised in an autocratic world, Caligula became more despotic than any of his predecessors. He used social perversion debauchery and brutality to mock the senate and to flaunt his power, eventually demanding that they and the whole of Rome worship him as Jove, the supreme god of the ancient Roman pantheon. When writing about moderation, Democritus stated that the animal needing something knows how much it needs, for the man does not. Had you have seen Caligula, you'll know the kind of debauched lifestyle that the Roman Empire had fallen into uh, towards the end of its existence around about the time that Caligula was reigning. Now this was uh, 12 AD and that would have meant that Jesus was only a boy in his early teens and so it's no wonder that he suggested in his sermons that one should follow a more prudent sexual lifestyle really. What is probably encouraged is sexual continence. Celibacy is, on the one hand, a commitment to avoid relationships and to abstain from sexual practices. But it has its dangers if it creates feelings of denial, sacrifice and loss. Then it becomes a practice of renunciation and attachment. Perversity, depravity and lust are quite the opposite and create an environment of attachment. The one pushes, and the other pulls. I'm an advocate of living in a space of truth to oneself. I constantly check whether my thoughts, words, actions and deeds are nurturing a healthy relationship with me, or whether they are detracting from it. Whenever I'm thinking, saying or doing something that leads me away from a good relationship with myself, I immediately stop doing it, and instead I constantly strive to build a healthy relationship with myself. This also includes my sexual endeavours. Anderson and Morris would probably welcome homosexuals in the church, provided they repented for all their previous sins and abstained from all future sexual expression unless it was of a heterosexual nature. This kind of celibacy is for many an impossibility leaving them with very little choice but to choose between honouring self and staying with the church. But I have a feeling that there is a middle ground, a place where the universal truth of holy texts gently and kindly meets up with gay people. After all, what is it that they are doing that is so different from the sexual practices of heterosexual people? LGBTI people are equally repulsed by child molestation, bestiality, and unbridled, out-of-control sexual expression, just as heterosexual people are. Why? Because they are also kind, caring members of society who uphold common law values of decency. The presumption that all homosexuals are out of control, perverted child molesters, and wild sexual beasts is absolutely preposterous. Heterosexual people are just as prone to illicit sexual practices as are any other segment of our community. Heterosexuals readily engage in oral and anal sex, yet one seldom hears the Christian call for their execution. So where do we find the real difference between homosexuality and heterosexuality? Homosexuals look the same as heterosexuals, and it would be impossible to tell them apart simply by looking at their genitals. You can't even tell them apart by the way they use their genitals because they use them in exactly the same way as heterosexuals use them. The only thing that ever sets them apart is the gender of the person with whom they choose to make love. It's as simple as that. Putting it another way, there are as many wholesome, beautiful, committed gay relationships as there are straight ones. And sadly, there are also many abusive, controlling and bullying ones in both the homosexual and heterosexual segments of our community. I'm not sure that the mechanisms of sex are being brought under scriptural scrutiny. Instead, I have a hunch that these texts are suggesting that our sexual practices are explored in a wholesome manner, devoid of the need for power, control, and perverse self-gratification. Perhaps when we do a good bit of soul-searching, we should be asking ourselves whether our sexual expressions bring us into a deeper relationship with self or not. Then, regardless of whether we are gay or straight, We should seek sexual interaction that is consensual between partners and for the greater good of all. If you have any suggestions for this program or wish to contact me to make some comments, then please feel free to do so via the station's uh, email address. That is studio at gaysaradio.co.za. Of course, you can also use the radio station's Uh, social media, networks, those you will find on the website, www.gaysaradio.co.za. Let me leave you with one thought for the week. It's from Matthew Arnold, an English poet and writer. He says, Greatness is a spiritual condition worthy to excite love, interest and admiration. And the outward proof of possessing greatness is that we excite love, interest and admiration. This is Soul Searching, your weekly program where we explore all the spiritual matters that matter. My name is Tom Budge and you are listening to Gay SA Radio, where you are family. Until next time, goodbye.